I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. I took Mary and the kids down to Louisiana, and we stayed on my sister Frida's houseboat on a lake. We got there with only a few dollars, and all the time we were there, all we had was $145 that came from my welfare check. But that was all that we needed, because each day I was out on the lake running trout lines that had 100 hooks on them. So I was catching enough fish for us to eat and to sell for all the things that we needed, like milk and whatever for the kids. We spent the next five months living on that houseboat, and it was the best time of our lives. I went through a lot of changes living on that houseboat because I wasn't around the club and going to the meetings each week and and only being involved with members and their way of thinking, which to me was something like brainwashing. We lived in our own little world and had been so intent on keeping up with everyone that everything we did was so normal to us. But after a while living on that houseboat, I began to notice how all the things that we thought were so important and how we lived was so far out of touch with what was real. It started to really work on me. I'd been spending a lot of time on that lake each day and had gotten in real good shape rowing and such. I hadn't taken any drugs or did any drinking and was eating good each day. I had even started to talk to Mary about quitting the club and moving down there. We'd even found a place to buy and set up a daycare center she could run and I could run lines and sell fish. We would just sit on the front porch of that houseboat every night in these rocking chairs and just talk about everything that came to mind. I began to think about never going back. I have great memories from being on the houseboat. That was a really happy family time too. And it was because we were in a very small, it was almost like a living room on a boat. But we all slept in that living room together. I remember waking up and we were running around playing tag in the middle of the night, but pretending we were asleep. So I'd get up and I'd go poke my dad and run back and jump in my bed and he'd come up and he'd get up and poke somebody else. But I remember being on that houseboat and it was on Toledo Bend, just inside the border of Texas. My aunt and uncle came to visit us quite a few times. Um, I remember all of that and going out on a boat and going fishing with my father. It was good bonding time, but my father, I also remember, had to go and make phone calls for about an hour or two every day. So he kind of knew right around lunchtime that he'd be gone. Tommy would call me every week on the payphone near the boat. 
And then George sent me a letter saying that they had found Tommy's old lady and that he was going to come down and tell me about it. I didn't like the idea of him coming down and got to thinking that he might just be worried about me. So I got this pistol and put it in my tackle box in the small fishing boat that I used to run lines with just in case he had something in his head about dumping me. When he came down, we were out in the boat back in the swamps. George tried to throw his rod and my back was to him. And when he threw, the bait and the hook hit me in the back. As soon as that hook caught me in the back, I thought it was a knife and I spun around with that 38 cock and I had it pointed straight at his head. He damn near jumped out of the boat when he seen that gun pointed at him. And I damn near pulled the trigger before I snapped that it was just his hook in my back. It shook me so bad that I couldn't talk. And I just sat there pointing that gun at him as he was ducking and moving from one side to the other at his end of the boat saying, hey Butch, cool it. I just came down here to visit you, bro. But the rest of the time he was there, I never took my eyes off of him or let him get behind me, which he could feel. And I think that was the reason that he wanted to leave right away. This was the first time I had really been away from that way of life. When I was in Cleveland, we stayed loaded most of the time, only ran with each other and talked to each other. Our whole world was each other. But now I was different, and I knew it. I remember thinking to myself, fuck, and I miss these guys? I'd be glad if I never see them again. We're singing all day, you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know. Night time, the morning time, yeah. We're going strong, headed up, down the river. Oh, Lord, I feel the reveling. I feel a change on the rise. I'm Jackie Taylor, and this is Relative Unknown. In the mid-70s, Cleveland was known as Bomb City, USA. But when the violence turned from gangsters killing gangsters to women and children being killed, like at the Sigley House, the city began to focus more law enforcement efforts on organized crime, which in their view included the Hells Angels. Here's retired Cleveland Police Intelligence Unit Sergeant Bob Cermak, whose focus was on organized crime in the city. There's a great misconception of organized crime by the general public. La Casa Nostra, your Italian mafia, is the epitome of organized crime. But in Cleveland, we had the Jewish mafia, we had the Italian mafia. We had a bunch of Irish gangsters who thought they were mafia, but they weren't organized enough to be organized crime. We had a black mafia that was very organized, uh, primarily in the area of gambling, who worked hand-in-hand with the Italian mafia. The Hells Angels were part of that same group. They were organized. They had a structure. They had leadership. They had rules. They were part of organized crime. And as an intelligence unit, it was our responsibility to investigate all of them. And they were always on our radar. I recall one incident where they had a president's meeting and uh, we decided to set up a surveillance at the clubhouse. And across the street from the clubhouse was a school. And the uh, parking lot for the school was in the back of the building, which faced the clubhouse. So a couple of my guys were in this, this brown van. And they're taking pictures of the people coming and going. And all of a sudden, about eight or ten angels come walking out of the clubhouse. 
and they walk across the street and they walk up to the van and they walk around the van and then they started shaking the van. Then they went back in the clubhouse. I think they just wanted to let us know that uh, they knew we were there. It was never any secret that both sides were well aware of each other. Here's former Cleveland Angel, Matt Zanaskar. I started a hydraulic business. I come out of the house, I lived in this back house, I come out to the street and I noticed this car. And it was the same car that had come by the previous evening by the clubhouse and somebody had pointed out to me, say, I think that's the ATF guys over there. I'm heading to the shop trying to put my business together. It's like seven o'clock in the morning. I says, wow, you know, you're under surveillance, you know, so what are you gonna do? So anyhow, uh, I get in my truck and I go down the street and I and I, <laughs> I make a right-hand turn and it was garbage day. And I see this carpeting. Somebody had just thrown out some carpeting. Uh, so I pull over, I get out and I'm looking through this carpeting. It was pretty good because we didn't, we had a very small office, you know. I said, wow, this rug will probably fit in there. So I'm pulling this <laughs> rug out of the garbage and here comes the ATF guys again you know <laughs> and I, and, and they slowed down and then I'm throwing this carpeting into the fucking truck and uh, tell you the truth I never seen that car come back again uh, because they weren't doing no more surveillance on me they probably figured the only thing this guy's gonna do is take us to a cleaner garbage can <laughs> Because of some high-profile bombings and shootings associated with the club, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, had begun to lead the effort to dismantle them. And one of the supervisors at the Cleveland ATF Bureau was a man named Steve Wells. Here's Bob Cermak again. Steve Wells is a nice guy, easy to get along with. As an ATF agent, he was good at doing undercover. He was good at doing investigations. He was a good interrogator. We worked multiple investigations together, and I have to say the majority of people at that Cleveland ATF office, they had a real good crew. They really did. One of Steve Wells' top ATF agents was a man named Bernard Butkovich. Butkovich had made national headlines when on special assignment in 1979, he became a central character in a shooting which left five people dead in Greensboro, North Carolina. There is a verdict tonight in a civil suit in the case of the five communist marchers who were killed almost six years ago in Greensboro, North Carolina. A jury found five Klansmen and Nazis, two police officers, and a police informant liable for one of the deaths. In this trial, law enforcement and city officials were named as part of a conspiracy. The case centered around Bernard Butkovich, an undercover federal agent who had infiltrated the American Nazi Party. Lawyers for the Greensboro Civil Rights Fund claimed Butkovich encouraged Nazis and Klansmen to bring guns to the Communist March. Butkovich was cleared in that lawsuit, but the story of his involvement in five shooting deaths by Nazis and Klansmen followed him back to Cleveland, and so did a reputation of playing fast and loose. Bernie was kind of a unique character. He was a very detail-oriented person and could be like a pit bull. When he latched on, he wasn't going to let go forever. And uh, he just took an interest to the Hells Angels. I think he was probably the primary reason that the Cleveland office of ATF had an interest in the Angels. 
it was something that was personal with him. They were going to do a search warrant, and uh, Bernie went out and had baseball hats made that said Hell's Angels Task Force with the Hell's Angels emblem on the front. And they just went absolutely ballistic. So then he went out and had some t-shirts made up that said Hell's Angels Task Force. And they were going to sue him. They were going to take him to court because they thought that was an infringement on their copyright. It pissed him off a whole bunch that Bernie would be so brazen as to do something like that, but he had no fear of them. Butkovich had even gone to the clubhouse at one point to hand out his business card. I remember telling him he was an asshole, but he said, no, he says, I'm, I, I got to go talk to these guys. He just went in there just to introduce himself, let them know who he was. Like I say, he had no fear. Bernie Butkovich had detailed ATF reports on several members of the Cleveland Angels. You may remember from episode two, he'd begun a report on my father as well. This is a request for a unique identifier regarding the investigation of Clarence Addie Crouch of Cleveland, Ohio. Then Butkovich had questioned my mother. Mary Crouch was very distraught and didn't want to comment on anything related to her husband. And that's when she packed us up and took us to Florida. Shortly after, my father had gone back to Toledo Bend to lay low on my aunt's houseboat. And that's when he picked up the phone and made the call that changed all of our lives. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Butch. Yep. This is Bukovich. Yep. Okay. Uh, let me lay it out just the way it comes, okay? Mm-hmm. This is a verbatim reading of the transcription of a phone call between Butch Crouch and ATF agent Bernie Butkovich on November 3rd, 1981. My father was speaking from my grandmother's house in Shreveport. This call, this is the exact moment that our lives were changed forever. You have to understand that for us to deal with you in terms of the witness protection program, there has to be major offenses like homicides, narcotics, bombings, et cetera, that you have to have knowledge of, okay? Mm-hmm. Organized crime related. You have to be willing to testify, mm-hmm. okay? And um, before you get into the program and before protection can be granted to you... We before? Sh- pardon me? Before protection can be granted to me? Okay. Initially... You, you have- mean I got to sit out here by myself? No. 
No, listen to me, Butch. Yeah. We take care of the protection. We at this bureau take care of you first, okay? Yeah, I don't want to wait down in no jail. No, that's not the point. And then before you get into the program itself, we take care of you, okay? Yeah. When we start working with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, but before you can get into the Justice Department Witness Protection Program, you have to be able to testify. We can't offer you any offer of immunity until we can verify, and it's been approved of all of these violations that were committed that you can lay on us too, okay? You may have to plead out to be approved. Well, approved by the justice. Department. That ain't that ain't my job to do that. No, no, approved. I can just huh? Approved, approved by the justice department. Okay, you may have to plead out to one felony, probably an ATF type of case. Okay, I have to plead and out to a felony. You'll probably have to. I'll explain in a minute. You have to. Uh, you have to tell us everything. Right from the get-go, you have to tell us if you were involved in any homicides and give us a statement about the whole damn thing. Hmm. Remember who you mentioned about Jimmy the Weasel? Yeah. He was involved in several murders. He got five years, and he made a hell of a lot of money on his book after he got out. You mean I got a cop to a felony and do time? Yeah, that's the way it's laid out here from the Strike Force people. Hmm. That don't sound right. You ain't got me by the nuts even after I started talking to you. Fuck, I could just blaze out on my own and get out of it. I'm pretty slick myself. Yeah, well, you know, streetwise you are. Streetwise you got. Hey, it. I can grab a fucking lawyer. I can go. I can go someplace else. Some, okay, you you know. I can do it with. I I ain't, I ain't even checked around or nothing. I just said, well, fuck it, man. I'll just go ahead and turn all the way around and just get it the fuck over with. But you but you talking about me doing five years? Yeah. In a federal penitentiary. Well, I'm just laying it out to you the way that the way they had it done with the other guys. And in order for us to be able to get together, you know, naturally, it's going to have to be a damn secure place. And in most cases, what we would normally do is either pick you up and put you on a plane or we'd go someplace where we could talk. Yeah, well, that's what I figured. I'd just go to a motel and wait. Yeah, but the thing is, Butch, you're going to have to give us some idea of what you can tell us about, like, you know, the victims of homicides or bombings or whatever. (laughs) Can you lay anything like that on me? No, I I am laying nothing on the phone. I don't know what the hell, what... What you, you got me all shook, man. I don't know what the fuck, what, you know, whether you're just going to take me, use me up, drop me off on a fucking limb somewhere. This is all a new game to me. This is a whole new ball game. I just fucking hit a split in the road and I'm fucking taking it and going to do it. I got my own fucking reasons. I'm going all the way. Okay. And th- never mind that click because I ain't answering it. Oh, that's another line coming in. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, again, and I got to have protection for my old lady in Florida. And that protection for my mother here, you know? Yeah. But the point I want to lay on you, I talked to supervision here and they said, before we can set up a meeting, we've got to have something to go on. Some kind of leads. Tell us something about homicides, about who the victims were that, you know, that you're familiar with. Any, any kind of bombings that went on that you know what's going on. Mm. uh, Without that, we really can't get the ball rolling. If you can give us something to go on, we could probably get something going within 12 to 24 hours. We could probably 12 to 24 hours. I thought you had it down a lot more tighter than this. What do you mean? By tomorrow morning, same time, and give us something that we can check out and find out that, yeah, in fact, you do know about... I know know about a lot. I know you know about a lot. As far as standing there and watching it happen, I never... You know, there's a lot of things I didn't stand there and watch. You know, I wasn't no eyewitness to a lot of things. But still, you know a lot about what went on, about who was involved in what homicides, narcotics transactions, right? Oh, yeah. I, I just I, I just want a straight deal. 
I ain't never had no bad dealings with you, but I ain't never had none either. You understand? Yeah, yeah. But I got to look out for myself, too, and I got to, you know, and this is going to entail this. I'm going to pick up a lot of tail on this. Where my mother's house is, my old lady in Florida, you know? Yeah, well, we both know that. And that's why I told you, listen, before I can sit there and tell you what I can give you, let me find out what I can do. Well, you should know who I am. Next, the conversation takes a turn to my father, speaking about knowing that Butkovich was asking around about him to other Hells Angels. And this seems like it added some motivation for my father to make this call. He was telling them about dope deals and this and that, and some kind of witness to a murder or something. Then you went out there to Geneva, and you was asking around about me out there. And you was talking dope deals out there. You had me in a hell of a cross then. Why's that? They're all looking out the side of their eye at me. You was showing pictures around or something. Other than from Kerr Lake, nothing about you. No pictures of you. No, you was asking about me before. I, I talked to Mary, and she said, yeah, I'll see if I can get a hold of him. In fact, that was the night before she took off to Florida. Well, that was common knowledge. Everybody jumped in on my soap opera. Well, I... I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, Butch. You know what I can do for you, but in order to get the ball rolling, I have to have some drift of what you can tell me. I told you, I can't stand there and say, yeah, I've seen this and seen that. I can help you build a whole gang of cases on just fucking hearsay and this and that. Okay, give me some homicide victims that you were involved in. Not you, but... That I was involved in? I'm not saying, hey, tell me who did what. Just tell me what you know. In other words, you know about so-and-so getting their head popped. You know about a certain bombing. You see what I'm getting at? There was this... There was a guy killed that was walking up his driveway. Up what driveway? He was walking up his driveway somewhere and got shot. I've seen a clipping on it. Yeah? The clipping was passed around at church. Okay. That was Jack rolling his bones. Okay? He hit him with a forty-five in the driveway with a silencer. That was Jack, all right? Okay. Is that good enough? Okay, that's... That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, Butch. Now, 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 all I've seen is a clipping on it, okay? I know. And there was no sound. They don't talk with sound in the clubhouse no more. You understand? Yeah. There's blackboards and shit, all right? Now, the clipping was laid down. The finger was pointed. Okay. How can I get a hold of you tomorrow? Tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning? Yeah. Well, I'm probably just going to go get a motel and wait. You want to try calling here? I'm going to do this right. The bigger I am... The more longer y'all are going to try to keep me alive. Until you get through with me anyway. Butch, we're going to do it right all the way down the line, okay? It's not like we're going to keep you alive and then dump you, okay? It's not a matter of getting through with you. Like I said, we're going to take you under our wing, and we're going to take care of you, okay? And then, when you become available to get into the program, then that's it. It's not a matter of now we're all done with you. We're going to give you back to the wolves. What about my old lady and kids? Chances are, if you want your lady and kids, they're going to go with you. The very next day, Butch Crouch was put on a plane from Shreveport back to Ohio. Bernie Butkovich and his ATF supervisor, Steve Wells, then took him out to a state park where he was protected under armed guard and interviewed. Butkovich came over to our office one day and he asked if we had a couple minutes. 
This is retired CPD Intelligence Unit Sergeant Bob Cermak again. So he came in and shut the door to the office and he said, would you believe it if I told you that we rolled an angel? And I said, no. I said, I don't think I would believe it. And then he proceeded to tell us what had happened. It was quite a surprise. The mafia calls it Omerta, and the angels just call it dead. Anybody snitched, they were going to get killed. It was just that simple. They never roll. Butch was just uh, a gift. He chose to just give us a present. Every informant that I have ever done business with is an informant that we cultivated. I never had an informant come down this way where they called you and said, hey, I want to be a snitch. Uh, it just, it's, it's, it doesn't happen that way. Because it was such a unique set of circumstances, I'm not sure everybody believed that he was truly going to become a real source of information. Some people thought it was a game. You know, we just didn't know. But then my father told Butkovich and Steve Wells about a storage container. He said that this container was used to hide weapons for the Cleveland Hells Angels. So they coordinated with the FBI and CPD bomb squad to check it out. We decided to bring a bomb dog in to search all these lockers. You heard former bomb squad sergeant Pat Reynolds last episode. Detective Reynolds was on the scene at the Sigley bombing on Lansing Avenue in 1975, which killed Marianne Sigley, her two-year-old son, and a friend. Well, Reynolds was also there on November 23, 1981, standing outside the storage locker. We already knew which locker the explosives were in, but we wanted to justify our search. So the dog... <laughs> Funny story, the dog walked by about four different times. It didn't sit. And the idea, well, when the dog sits, that means he's found something. So we called the dog handler over and said, you know, walk him past this again, which he did, and nothing there. Walk him by that locker and make sure he sits down because there's something there. Once the dog finally sat, Reynolds had probable cause. When we first entered the locker, it was like a holy shit. My God, this is an awful lot of stuff we have here. Reynolds wrote a report of what was found. I actually have here the report that I made. Cleveland Police Department hereby acknowledged receipt of the following illicit weapons. We recovered one Smith & Wesson shotgun, one AR-15, one Colt 45 semi-automatic uh, handgun with silencer and the serial number filed down, one handgun silencer one Swedish 9mm machine gun, fully automatic one cut weapon, down M1 carbine, loaded magazine, one carbine bayonet, one MP40, which is a type of semi-automatic handgun, 9mm magazine, another silencer, one Remington shotgun, no serial number, one flash suppressor, one Smith & Wesson gas flare pistol. Now here are the explosive devices which were found. One half block of military TNT, Eight. 90 millimeter tank, gunfire, simulator cartridges, approximately 750 foot of detonating cord, one hand grenade marked RF-54, B5, one fragmentation hand grenade, four M26 military fragmentation grenades, two grenades marked grenade hand offensive MK3A2, two gas grenades, one law rocket marked high explosive 66 millimeter, it's a shoulder held 
small bazooka, one box of DuPont electric blasting caps containing 45 caps, 17 military blasting caps marked HEP high Two. explosive plastic bags containing brown explosive material, one roll of yellow blasting wire, which is the electric wire you would use to um, detonate materials, and two L312 signal illuminators ground white star parachute flares. We made an immediate connection with that. So like, bingo, look at this, holy shit. The only place we've ever seen these before was at the Lansing Avenue bombing where three people were killed. There was no question in our minds, this is a signature, signed to John Hancock in big letters. There was no question in our minds at the time. We're the ones who put that device on, on Lansing Avenue. The storage unit search and its contents made headlines in the Cleveland Plain Dealer in November of 1981. So did the fact that the tip came from an informant. Bernie Butkovich and his ATF supervisor, Steve Wells, had been protecting and interviewing my father and vetting the information that he gave them. Unfortunately, Butkovich is no longer alive, but Steve Wells is. Several years ago, Wells suffered a massive stroke, which made his speech difficult to understand. But his memory is as sharp as ever, and his first-person account is crucial to this part of the story. So here, you're going to hear Wells, followed by another voice repeating his words verbatim. Bernie, you mean that he had a guy from a water covered, and we all went to a motel and put center and cooked toast. Hundreds of pages of information. Bernie told me that he had a guy from the Hells Angels, wanted to cooperate, and we all went to the motel, and Butch sat there and told us hundreds of pages of information. We put him in the back of this park. We put him in the back of this park, in the state park, in Loudonville, and then he stayed there. And I loaned him my TV, and he went into the woods, in a cabin, and stayed for weeks, out in hiding. I had a little black and white TV he watched, and he tried to fish, but nothing was there. It was late in the year, and the park was closed. Everything was closed. I did ask this question, why he came. He said he just couldn't take it anymore. He told us about all the bombings, and all the murders that we knew about, and some we didn't know about, and that Tommy Padovic killed his wife, too. Shot her, right in front of the Hells Angels clubhouse and they stuck her in a 55-gallon drum. They killed the wrong guy in Akron, who they thought was Groundhog, and he was supposed to be with the outlaws. Butch was upset because he had killed the wrong guy in a drive-by shooting, and he cried about that. He cried. He was upset over killings he had been involved in. First time I ever saw a man cry like that. I just think he got tired of all the killing. That's what I think. That's all I ever heard. After one month, on December 2nd, 1981, Steve Wells filed a 10-page report with the heading Crime Impact Program, Hells Angels Motorcycle Club. Crouch advised that he could provide information concerning a variety of crimes, including several unsolved murders and bombings committed by members of the HAMC. Crouch was advised that no promises could be made to him, nor could any provisions of immunity be granted, 
Further, he was informed that he would have to testify in court in order to be considered as a potential candidate for any witness security program. In addition, he was also advised that he might be required to plead to a criminal charge if the information he supplied warranted such a plea. At the time of Crouch's call to the Cleveland ATF office, he was under investigation by this office, but no criminal case had been developed, nor were any criminal charges pending or imminent in connection with the ATF investigation. Crouch has been orally advised that he is not in criminal custody and is free to leave at any time. It then lists the cases that he told Wells and Butkovich about. Denise Padovic murder, 1974. Crouch states that he was present when Denise Padovic was shot to death by her husband. Bruce Buddy Sunday murder. Sunday was a former vice president of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club. Sunday was riding his motorcycle on I-77 in Cleveland around midnight on July 3, 1975. A vehicle pulled up alongside and the passenger in the vehicle opened fire, killing Sunday. Outlaw Motorcycle Club member murder, Toledo, Ohio, 1981. Crouch states that he knows from statements made who shot and killed a member of the Outlaws in the past year. Sigley bombing murder. On January 7, 1975, a destructive device exploded inside the William Sigley residence, killing Mary Ann Sigley, 21 years old, Michael Sigley, 2 years old, and Burdell Offit, 22 years old. Crouch identified the Hells Angels members involved in this incident. Finally, when told he'd need to plead guilty to a felony of his own in order to secure witness protection, my father told them about a crime that took place on June 9, 1974, less than three months after I was born. This passage, taken from his manuscript, describes that crime. At the meeting, everyone agreed and we declared war on the outlaws. After church, I got the address of an outlaw named Groundhog and I was ready to kill him. I was given a pump shotgun and told to cut it down and make sure it was wiped clean and the numbers were taken off it with a chisel. And I wrapped it in a blanket and stored it where Mary couldn't find it. A couple days later, the guys came by and said it was on. And now, back to Steve Wells' report. Crouch states that on June 9, 1974, he and two other Hells Angels traveled to Akron from Cleveland in a stolen vehicle for the purpose of killing Steve Wargo, a.k.a. Groundhog, a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang. On arrival at that address, Crouch, armed with a 12-gauge sawed-off shotgun and another member, armed with a 9mm submachine gun, opened fire on a group of individuals standing in the driveway. When we got out, one guy took a step towards us and we opened up. I shot towards the guy, and as the flash of the shotgun lit up his face, I seen that he was a kid, and I stopped and froze. Then I deliberately turned the gun and shot a window in the house that was lit up, and I could see there was no one in it. I was looking up the driveway, and there was no one standing in the way between me and the garage, so I thought I could shoot into the garage without hitting anyone, and at least the guys would think I was shooting in the right direction anyway. But just as I shot, one of them ran out from behind the car and I knew that I'd hit him. What was worse was that I'd seen his face and he was just a kid too. Then I heard his groan and it was loud and it was a high-pitched kid's voice. And I knew he was hit bad. After firing at the group of individuals, they fled from the scene, abandoned the stolen car, leaving weapons behind in the vehicle 
and taking the license plates with them. All of a sudden, we were parked in this parking space and they were yelling at me to just drop the gun and the floorboard and leave it and all the shells I had there. We were parked right under this big bright light that lit us and the car up. I said, fuck man. Every motherfucker and his brother can see us out here fucking with these license plates. I was so mad, I reached down and ripped the plate off with one twist and jerk. Without saying anything, they both started walking across the parking lot towards this car, and I turned and started following them. I looked around and saw this woman looking at us, and so I started limping real bad like I had a real bad leg. Plus, I put my hand up to my face and turned away from her. I jumped in the back seat and blew it, yelling that it was stupid to park this far away from the car and have to walk all the way in that light while that woman was just watching us the whole time. They said, hey, Butch, lighten up. It's over. Now you can relax. I jumped towards the front of the car and started yelling that it would never be over because that was kids that we just shot, not outlaws. As a result of this shooting, Donald Delacera, 17 years old, was killed by a blast from the shotgun. Crouch's description of the incident and the subsequent actions have all been substantiated by prior police investigation. Until Crouch's interview by ATF, this case was unsolved, with no suspects. Unsolved, no suspects. But now, the word was out, and there was no going back. Here's former Cleveland Hells Angels president, Matt Zanaskar. It was just devastating. From California to New York, people could not believe it. As far as his character coming into question, it was chiseled in granite. There was no way something like that was a total shock. Like the guillotine dropped on the word loyalty. Some people loved that man. They loved that man. They fought side by side. They were going to take a bullet, take a blade, whatever it took. And they knew he would do the same for them. And then you come up and say, well, he's going to roll and this and that. And he's going to work him for the government. What could bring somebody to the point that they would roll like this for no reason at all? Out of the clear blue. He's going to get rid of his wife and his beautiful children? He's going to give all of that up for what? For what? That is not logical. That is not lie. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't square. Angels forever, forever angels. That's a culmination of everything you experience as a member. The ups, the downs, the happiness, the sadness, and then the betrayal. This brings us to the moment we were scooped up in Florida, brought to the safe house in Tampa, and then put into the witness protection program. But life in the program isn't anything like the movies. For me, it was just misery as we were dumped in the most unlikely of places. That's next time on Relative Unknown. What good's a man who's lost his soul Can't take a stand 
these flames gone cold. Relative Unknown is a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, and Rumor Inc. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, David Balinson, Michael Galinsky, and Suki Holly. Written, produced, directed, and edited by Zach Levitt. Produced and edited by Perry Kroll. Our theme song is Change on the Rise by Avi Kaplan. Original music composed by Joel Goodman. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production support by Ian Mont and Lloyd Lockridge. Field recording by Rich Berner, Michael Galinsky, Perry Kroll, and Connor Waddingham. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malingone. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. I'm Jackie Taylor, and thanks for listening to Relative Unknown. I feel a change on the rise. I feel a change on the rise. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.